Welcome to Because and Effect, a podcast from the Winnipeg Foundation, where we talk to people about the causes they care about and the effect that it has on their lives. My name is Nolan Bignall. Today's guest is another Winnipeg Foundation staff member who has been working in the philanthropic sector for decades. Megan Tate, the Director of Community Grants, started with the Winnipeg Foundation in 1999, and her knowledge and understanding of the charitable sector in our city is unparalleled. And Megan and her team have an incredible connection with the community organizations doing vital work in our city. Just a quick note, um, one of my microphones was malfunctioning during the conversation, so my audio is a little bit quiet in parts. I do apologize for that. I will be better next time. Uh, But here's my conversation with Megan Tate, Director of Community Grants at the Winnipeg Foundation. Thank you for listening to the Because and Effect podcast. My name is Nolan Bicknell, and I'm now joined, well, I'm joining her in her office, Megan Tate. She's the Director of Community Grants at the Winnipeg Foundation. Megan, thank you for having me. Thanks so much for inviting me to be on the show. Well, thanks for hosting me in your office here (laughs) in the corner of uh, Portage and Main, downtown Winnipeg. Uh, So we're going to talk about a lot of things, about the granting side of things. Um, But uh, maybe my first question is, how long have you been at the Winnipeg Foundation? Oh, Nolan, it's been a while. I started in 1999. I always need to explain to people that the role I have now is not the one that I started with. Uh, My first job title at the Winnipeg Foundation was communications assistant. And how many um, employees were at the foundation at the time? Do you remember? I was number eight. Number eight. And we're at like (laughs) 68 now or something? Something like that. So it's been a bit of growth. Um, Take me back to 1999. What was uh, Winnipeg like? What was philanthropy like in our city? What was people's generosity? How did it look? What, What was it like? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And so the foundation, as you mentioned, was much smaller in a whole bunch of different uh, ways. But we still, at that time, benefited from so many donors who had made gifts to our community fund, which meant we still proportionately had a lot of uh, grant-making capacity to be able to support what was happening in our community. Um, In many ways, the things that we were supported were similar to what we support today. We were interested in a vibrant arts and culture scene. We were really interested in education, uh, investments in early childhood education and health. Mm. So back then, you're probably talking millions of dollars. Now we're talking billions of dollars, weirdly, which is insane growth. I mean, partially in thanks to the great team that Rick Frost put together here and you and everyone that's been here for the last, uh, you know, so many years. But um, how has, how do you think just the landscape of generosity has changed? I mean, you said we're pretty much covering the same things, but obviously there's some new stuff, obviously the pandemics and stuff yes. were, are different, but what, <clears throat> what has the, the sort of output focused on from now since back then? Yeah, so I think... Um, Obviously, with our capacity, we're able to do larger grants, bigger investments. You know, I'm excited about some of the the larger capital projects that we've been able to support in our community. And and it's always just so fun to kind of look at the skyline of Winnipeg and look at the leaf as it goes up and know that we were part of that and watch the opening of the Royal Aviation Museum and to know we were part of that and the WAG's new Inuit Art Center. And we were part of that. And, uh, you know, Ronald McDonald House opened a new facility to welcome more families and we were part of that and so just to see kind of dotted all over the city all of these really big meaningful projects for our community that we've been able to be part of the one of your colleagues Noah Ehrenberg I saw him this morning I was like hey so I'm interviewing Megan this morning Uh, anything I should talk to her about and he kind of thought for a second and he was like I think the 
what we've been doing with responsive grants lately has been pretty interesting. So res being responsive at the Winnipeg Foundation, I mean, we're a very big organization, but we also have some agility. Can you just talk about like how we've been able, a couple examples of how we've been able to really pivot quickly when the community has needed something in, in like now, as opposed to like wait six months for a granting application or whatever? Yes, so I think that uh, COVID was a really great example of how the Winnipeg Foundation can move really quickly. And I think, again, that goes back to how many donors have left us with unrestricted gifts. And so that means that we can quickly respond to whatever the most pressing issue is of the day. Mm -hmm. And so um, COVID happened. Our community had to stay at home, shelter in place, and community organizations suddenly had to completely pivot what they were doing. So family resource centers, for example, that might have welcomed families into their space to attend programming, receive services, couldn't do that anymore. But they recognized that they also weren't able to provide the coffee and snacks that mm -hmm. people had come to rely on. And so they quickly pivoted to be able to provide food hampers to the families that they worked with and and we were able to get funds in the hands of those family resource centers right away right. um and you know the stereotypical funder there's an application process and you fill out a form and it takes a little while and then they make their decision and then they get back to you um and that wasn't a thing during covid right that mm -hmm. family resource center might contact us and say you know we're doing these hampers what can you do and based on our trusted relationship with that community organization we can say i think we can do something to help you with those hampers right away no form required um and so i'd say that was a, a shift yeah. um certainly there's other things we do that still requires a form um, but when the, the need is so immediate and so obvious, we right. can move really quickly. Those relationships are obviously foundational to how the foundation operates. Yes. Uh, foundational, no pun intended. But um, what, are you, what are you hearing from some of these organizations when it comes to, you know, the post-COVID recovery and how are things going? And, like, what's the general sort of vibe of, of organizations and grantees that, that you're hearing from these days? Yeah, I think a couple things. People are tired. Like, <laughs> those frontline organizations just went full steam ahead. Um, you know, when many of us were at home making sourdough bread, uh, they were not. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think people are, are tired. And another thing that we're hearing um, from community organizations, as they do start to return to in-person programming, they're finding it challenging mm -hmm. to recruit staff to deliver that programming. Um, and volunteer levels also haven't kind of returned to pre-pandemic levels right. either. Um, so, so those are some of the challenges I think community organizations are facing. And I guess the final one, again, particularly related to food security, is mm. there were lots of COVID dollars, including the Winnipeg Foundation, but others, um, who, who could provide COVID support for the immediate provision of food. Those dollars aren't there anymore, but the need still is. Right. Yeah, that's a uh, bit of a spoiler alert. Our Vital Signs publication is coming out in a month or two, and uh, that's food security and just that whole world. People are hungry, and, it, you know, we, we don't really think about that being, being a crisis, but, but it really is. Um, so what, what are you, what, what's the plan to try to move the needle on that and try to help things out? <clears throat> Yeah. So again, thinking of that, you know, I've mentioned that trust-based approach. We know the community organizations, we know what they do. Mm -hmm. So for example, we have a nourishing potential fund that's specifically to support the nutrition needs of youth serving organizations. And so there's a batch of community organizations. We know that they're working with youth. We know that they're providing nutritious food. And so we used a portion of the nutrition, uh, the nourishing potential fund and 
proactively provided grants to those community organizations. Again, nice. no form required. <laughs> Amazing. You mentioned frontline workers, and normally people kind of think like doctors, nurses, but but right. you know community centers and things that you mentioned before are also frontline workers and are seeing some of the people who are most vulnerable in our communities. So when you when they're reporting back, what what what's the what do you think is the, I mean, you said tired already, but what do you think the general vibe is for the different front, frontline workers who aren't necessarily hospital or, or those kind of staff? Like, how are they doing? Yeah, and it, it's probably a little bit different sector by sector. So, mm. um, if, for example, daycare centers, it was been really challenging because the rules are changing and the number of kids yeah. they can serve and kids are germy. We all know that, right? <laughs> Every person I know who has kids <laughs> is constantly sick. And it's like, okay. Yeah. So that was challenging. Um, youth serving organizations who relied so much on seeing the youth that they serve to check in to know mm. how people are doing. You just can't do that in the same way right. in Zoom. Um, so people were feeling like they couldn't check in in the same way. Um, I think um, COVID and and the sheltering in place was particularly challenging for the disability community, mm. for example. And still is, yeah. And still is, right? Um, and so those workers are kind of stretched in terms of making sure the people they work with are healthy and safe, but right. still not like stuck at home, right? So. Um, different challenges and then the art sector you know it's been so uncertain for the arts especially mm -hmm. those that rely on live performance right mm -hmm. um, you can have one cast member get sick and and that can screw up your whole production so uh, it it's still challenging for the sector for sure and they're still having to navigate uh, issues related to COVID yeah how do how do you and your team sort of decide what areas of focus to look at and focus on like is it just kind of whatever the community needs we that's where we're going or what's the process like yeah it's a little bit of a mix so you've used the word responsive so we are a responsive grant maker and so every um, you know a few times a year we host a broad call for proposals for uh, what we call community grants mm. and that's where communities just telling us what they need and it's everything from you know renovations to a space to launching a new pilot program um, but within the work that we do, each member of the grants team has a particular portfolio that allows them to gain deeper knowledge in a particular field, right. health and wellness, for example. Um, and so through those relationships with those community organizations and the knowledge that they hold, um, we are also to able to um, be strategic right. when we're thinking about where we might want to allocate some of our grant dollars. How have you stayed uh, vigilant over 23 years in this in this world? Because it's hard to, you know, there's a lot of tough days. So, like, how do you stay energetic? Yeah. I mean, you can probably tell from my voice, I really love what I do. And mm -hmm. I love working for the foundation. And it, as you've articulated, it's a very different organization than the one that I joined 23 years ago. Um, but it's also... Um, I've always been drawn to work in the charitable sector. That's sort of, if you look at the other roles I've had pre-1999, <laughs> uh, that they were in the charitable sector. And, and I always say, like, it's nothing compared to what the community organizations themselves are doing and the work required to serve our community. Yeah, those uh, frontline ground, like boots on the ground, grassroots organizations are always it's always it, what but I mean we get to visit them and, and see what happens almost every day you're learning about a new organization or a new person or someone that's like helping out the helping out the community in some way and I found personally that's one of my favorite parts about this job is just being able to meet 
people and hear their stories of people who are making a difference. Is there any that pop to mind of like just, I know you can't pick favorites <laughs> as the director, but I mean just some organizations that are close to your heart that you've uh, over the years, you know, grown to either um, find more about and, and become closer with or just, just over the years you remember them? Yeah, so that's a great, and, and I think your experience really mirrors mine. I said that I started in communications, mm-hmm. and my favorite part was always visiting community organizations, learning more about what it is that they do and why. Um, yeah. And why. Um, that said, I always loved you know meeting donors and having tea with donors and learning their stories as well. Um, and so it's true; it is really hard to pick uh, favorite organizations. So maybe I will... Uh, you can pick a, a cause area. Yeah, maybe I'll just say kind of what is so interesting about our work and the scope of the organizations that the Winnipeg Foundation works mm-hmm. with. So I can, you know, one day be backstage at a local theater company and sort of, you know, getting that real behind-the-scenes sneak peek. Uh, And then the next day I can be at a community food center uh, that has kind of an innovative approach to serving community food in a, in a, you know, sharing meals together Mm -hmm. in a, in a really authentic, dignified way. And so just the range of community organizations that we get to work with means I never have a boring day. Yeah, exactly. I couldn't agree more. Um, You mentioned a little bit about sort of moving forward and our plan ahead. I know we're in a strategic planning phase with Sky Bridges, our new CEO. I know you can't tell specific about the plan but um, maybe just generally how are those conversations going how are you feeling about Sky being on board he's about a year in maybe a year and a half in Uh, how are things going as far as like the plan for the future of the foundation yeah um, I'm really excited about the direction that the plan is is taking Um, I think it's safe to say that you know I've talked a lot about the breadth of the work of the foundation and and that some of the conversations that we're having is how can we still support that breadth of community but maybe go a little bit deeper uh, in some really key community issues where the foundation is uniquely positioned to make a difference Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm excited about about that opportunity and that approach I've been thinking a lot about the resources that we have and the ability that we have to make change in the city and and all and the and the debate around the endowment model have you given much thought about like the future of the foundation and how if we're going to adjust anything or or do you think that our model is the one that to stick with forever or no adjustments or, or I'm just curious your thoughts about just the big picture how the endowment model works how the community foundation movement is going and is perceived and is and is working on solving uh, some of the problems that we have Yeah, I mean, I think the world is changing. Philanthropy is changing. So I think we constantly have to be looking at our model, making sure that it's still working for the work we want to do and working for our community. Um, That said, again, during COVID, the fact that we have a permanent endowment fund with a high proportion of unrestricted funds meant that we could very quickly and in a big way support our community through a really difficult time and if we had a different funding model we wouldn't have been able to do that Um, so while I wouldn't say it needs to be exactly the same forever there are benefits to to the to the model that we have yeah very well said Um, what would you say to the average Winnipegger when it comes to um, just philanthropy in our city and 
you know, what you're seeing with grantees and organizations, obviously they need volunteers. They always need, everyone always needs dollars, but just <coughs> to the average Winnipegger, what would you say if they want to get involved with a cause they might care about or, or an organization they want to support? Yeah, so I think um, there's different ways to get involved. I think you mentioned volunteering is a really great way to get involved, to learn more about a community organization. Um, if you have the capacity to give, please give. Uh, give with as few restrictions as possible. Um, you've heard me talk about unrestricted funds a lot because um, I think um, this is probably one of my, you know, things that I want the world to know about the charitable sector is um, often people are really interested in supporting like the frontline programming, which is super important. Um, but to make that work possible, you need to pay for staff, you need to pay for computers, you need to pay the rent and the utilities. And so all of that goes in to making community work happen. And so I hope that when people are giving, they understand that just because their gift went to rent, they're still making right. a really big difference in community. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Keeping the lights on is just as important as you know, making a new project or a new whatever it is. Yeah, that's actually a great point. Um, so t take me back 20 years ago versus today. Um, what surprised you? What have you learned? Like, just give me sort of a general summary of, of how the, uh, the trajectory of philanthropy and the trajectory of giving here in Manitoba has changed or, or trends that you've seen or, you know, just a 20-year retrospective. <laughs> yeah. I think the, um, one of the biggest things I've seen change over the last 20 years is kind of that, um, and, and maybe it's where we are as a grants team and as a community organization right now, um, but just looking at who is receiving the allocation of philanthropic dollars. So we know there's been studies done to show that Indigenous-led organizations, for an example, receive a disproportionate mm -hmm. smaller share of philanthropic dollars than non-Indigenous mm -hmm. organizations. Um, and so some of the conversations we're having now, it's not just about the work that's being done, it's who's leading that work. Are they engaging in that work in a way that's culturally appropriate and is best meeting the needs of the community that they serve? Mm -hmm. And so I think, um, honestly, that wasn't a conversation we were having 20 years ago. Sure. It wasn't a conversation we were really having 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, but with the release of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's calls to action, um, and other works, uh, those conversations are a lot more urgent now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's wild to think about even 10 years ago, the drastic change in policy and, and ideas and ideology and, and just, uh, I mean, there's still a lot of work to be done, but yeah, you, it's it's nice to see progress. Yes. I remember talking to Winnie Corn Miller, who has been to protests in the 90s, and you know, every year she's protesting the same thing, it felt like, and I asked her kind of like, what, what's it like to kind of take two steps forward and then one step back all the time? And she's like, e over the long course of history, you do see the progress, yeah. whereas maybe year to year, it might not feel like any progress is being made. And yeah, for myself, I tend to be a little bit uh, impatient when it comes to things <laughs> like that. So yeah, it's good to know that there is progress being made. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how do you feel about the future, about, you know, the direction we're going in and the future of the foundation? Yeah, I think I'm an optimist by nature, right? Um, and and I also have that kind of long view. So, you know, I think I started the conversation by saying, you know, we fund mostly the same things that we've always funded. But then, you know, my most recent answer was more about, no, things are changing and we're looking a lot more at equity. 
uh, and justice. And so I'm excited about the, the future direction. You know, I'm it, it's um, exciting to work with Sky as a new CEO. That's not to take away um, from the time uh, when I worked with Rick Frost because I, I learned Rick so much. You, yeah. Rick hired yeah, me. That is very true. <laughs> and so I learned so much from him too. And so much of what I've been able to do really has been cut because of Rick's mentorship and support. But i um, really excited to work with Sky and his vision for community and for the foundation. Yeah, like you mentioned, kind of we still cover the things that we did 20 years ago. But now we've expanded, you know, it's not like we're going to forget about the things that we've always done. We're just going to also do other things as well, just to, to bring every more people into the tent under the under the TWF umbrella. Yes. Um, so at the end of our time together, we do a little segment called Just Because. It's yep. uh, questions all about the causes you care about and the effect that it has on your lives. Are you ready to go through them? I am. All right. Question one, what is the very first cause you ever remember caring about? Oh, gosh. I was probably about nine years old, and I just remember... It was the famine in Ethiopia. Really? And so every night on the news, there'd be stories and visuals of the impact that the famine was having in that country. Um, and then I also remember very vividly seeing, you know, the visuals of the bags of food being delivered to people in Ethiopia and recognizing that it, like, that was my first kind of awareness of donors. Uh, and so I, literally because I was nine years old cracked open my piggy bank and made a gift to support uh, the famine in Ethiopia um, and it was probably also my first introduction to matching gifts because my mom and dad agreed to match what I gave to support that particular cause oh, good good fam I'm guessing hey good parents <laughs> lovely um, yeah it's interesting to think about how TV and just how technology in general has affected how donations and gifts are made because I'm thinking of the the conflict in Europe, Ukraine right now and the mm-hmm. war going on there. It's like people from all across the world are knowing what's happening and it's the same as TV cameras in Ethiopia, right? Like just having this technology able to just tell the stories of different organizations or different um, countries in the in the world is a wild thought to think. Has has technology changed how your work is done at all? Um, as far as like what people um, are looking to support, you know, you get calls being like, hey, we want to support Ukraine. How can we do it? Like, even though it's a Winnipeg foundation or do people think about that stuff? Yes, yeah. I think we're like, it's not a Winnipeg foundation thing. It's just a world thing. Like we're just a much more global society. Go. Right. And and so and I think it's also like everything's connected, even though mm. the conflict is happening in Ukraine. Winnipeg is welcoming hundreds of Ukrainians and how can we support them? So it's something happening overseas that still has an impact on the lives of people in our community, right? So everything's just so connected. Very well said. Yeah, perfect. Question two, if money and politics and logistics were just no issue at all, you could just snap your fingers and something would happen. What would you do in support of your current cause? Yeah, so my current, like the thing that I just think is so important is to make sure that families feel supported. Um, It's funny, I just went for a walk last week with a friend who just had a baby and it was just a reminder, like having a baby is a wonderful thing, but it is also really hard. Um, And you know, I have a supportive husband and my son had four really active, engaged grandparents and aunties and uncles. Um, So we felt so supported and it was still kind of hard. And, And other families because of circumstances 
you know, might not have that support. And so if I could wave my magic wand, I would make sure that every new mom had both the emotional and the financial support that she needed until that kid moved out of the house. <laughs> yeah, my partner Stephanie's a midwife, so she gets the very first experiences of, you know, yes. people in vulnerable situations who still have to go through pregnancies without the resources that a lot of people have. And it's like, you see some real superheroes when, when you're uh, thinking about that's going to change my answer. I would actually start my support a little bit earlier than actually, because it is, um, you know, being able to support a, a new mom from the time she's pregnant all the way through to supporting that kid through that kid's whole life. For sure. Uh, question three, what's the biggest misunderstanding or stigma about your cause? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I was part of a cohort of people who work at U.S. foundations. Mm. And so for whatever reason, maternity leave came up. Oh. And and oh. so I would say I'm always so grateful that we're in Canada because in the United States, it's very, like, you have a kid, that's your thing to worry about, right? Um, so Canada's not quite like that, but it is still, I think, perceived as a fairly individual mm. endeavor. Mm. Um, and I always joke, but it's true, it takes a village. <laughs> I've said that sentence probably more than any other colloquialism on this podcast in my life. It takes a village. It takes a village, right? And so I think we have to stop viewing it as an individual familial decision. And it's really something that if we all came together to support families. Again, Canada, I think, does a lot in this area. Um, I, th I think that would be really helpful. And there's there's benefits, right? Like we're starting to see daycares being built in personal care homes, right? Mm -hmm. Because then the seniors that live in that home, you know, they can support and mentor those kids, but it's good for the seniors too, right? That intergenerational piece that I think sometimes gets lost in a modern world. Right, yeah, we're so individualistic. I'll take care of my family, you take care of yours, yes. and that's all that matters. Whereas growing up, it was like, I would get yelled at by people yes. I wasn't even related to on the street. Just like, get back here, you know? <laughs> and, and it really did take it, uh, the town, the village, to raise all the kids properly and, and together. So yeah, that's a, that's a great answer. And I will say, like, some of my favorite projects are ones that are really collective. So one that stands out is over the years, we, fu we funded something called a walking school bus. And it's just kind of a neighborhood gets together and they like a bus with wheels, except you're walking. You know, they'll walk down the street and through a neighborhood and collect kids along the way. And then they all end up at school together, right? And it's it's this sort of collective neighborhood approach to getting children safely and actively to school. We got to get back to that. But I, I, I mean, the pandemic really kind of put a wedge in between people's comfort meeting strangers and you know all that yes. stuff so uh, do you think that we're going to get back to a time of before or it's just going to be a slow build back or i don't know I, it's hard to compare <laughs> the future obviously but like again i'm do? an optimistic person and i think i mean humans are hardwired to seek connection right. right and so i am optimistic i do think it might not just happen organically that there might need to be approaches that kind of facilitate that kind of connection be more um, conscious rather than hoping that it just exactly falls back into place itself yeah. yeah uh question four what's a recent victory either personally or professionally that you uh, are proud of and would like to share yeah. So I would say I'm just so proud of the Winnipeg Foundation's response to COVID and how we were able to yeah. so quickly mobilize to support uh, community organizations. And so 
I'll brag a little, you know, really proud of the grants team who, you know, using the existing relationships that they had with community organizations were able to quickly reach out and say, what do you need? How can we help? Or sometimes just be like an ear to let people vent a little bit. Um, and then our donor engagement team, you know, reach out to donors who they thought could sort of support those efforts. And our finance team, like, you know, amped up how often we sent checks out the door just to make sure that those those grant dollars were landing as quickly as possible. So it was really a whole foundation effort um, that, you know, uh, centered in the grants team. So I'm really proud of that. When you see the machine work. Yes. And it works well, it's like, okay, it's kind of undeniable when, when, when you just put see it on paper and exactly what you just described yeah it's pretty cool to see uh question five what's the best piece of advice that you've ever been given (laughs) you know i can never answer this question so i'm gonna this is another one where i'm gonna cop out like there's different pieces of advice for different times of your life and different of your contacts so maybe what i will state instead is that for different phases of my life i've been benefited so much from mentors and mentorship, Mm -hmm. which is something that I really believe in. And so, um, you know, early in my career, had others here at the foundation who are a little uh, longer in their career who I just benefited from learning from their approach. So my predecessor in this role, Rick Lussier, Mm -hmm. was just a great mentor uh, to me. And then, you know, on the personal side of my life, just watching other people who I think are amazing moms, just sort of watching and learning from them and, and what they do. So, uh, but if you made me just pick one uh, piece of advice, I think don't sweat the small stuff <laughs> would be the biggest one. one. Especially in this uh, industry or sector. Yeah, there's uh, understandable. Do you have any um, advice for aspiring mentors and, and how they can best uh, be a good mentor? It's interesting. So I've also had the opportunity to be a mentor. And I think I learned just as much from being a mentor as I have from being a mentee because there's something about having to explain and articulate what you do and why you do it that way that just makes you think about it a little bit differently. So I think what I would say to potential mentors is uh, to really see it as a reciprocal relationship and not just sort of a thing on your to-do list. Nice. Beautiful. Uh, Question six. What advice would you give your 10-year-old self if you could talk to her? (laughs) She's so far away. Probably speak up more. Um, I was a pretty shy kid, and I also have a personality of kind of go along to get along. And so my advice to her would be to speak up for yourself and the things that you believe in. And I'm also saying that out loud to my 47-year-old self, uh, because it's still a work in progress, right? Just making sure that I'm standing up and speaking out. Love it. Beautiful. Uh, Question seven. It's usually the hardest one, but uh, what do you want to be remembered for? Oh, gosh. So I hope that I'm remembered as a fun aunt and a kind mom. Um, And I hope at my retirement party. (laughs) In another 23 years, or what's the uh, math on that? I don't know. Oh, (laughs) I'd prefer not to do that math. (laughs) Um, But at my retirement party, I hope that what they say is that I did make a difference in philanthropy um, and that I was able to grow and evolve the work that we do to best meet community where they're at. 
while you're doing it. You already have done it, and I'm sure you'll continue to do it. Thank you for your time. Uh, I love talking shop with you because you, know, <laughs> you have wisdom, but you also have you bring brevity to situations, and it's just a delight to talk to you. So thank you, Megan Tate, Director of Community Grants at the Winnipeg Foundation. Thanks, Nolan. Thank you again for listening. Um, great conversation with Megan. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me about your work and about uh, all the great things that are happening here at TWF. Uh, if you're still listening and you haven't subscribed to the podcast yet, please go ahead and subscribe. It helps us out greatly, and uh, I really appreciate it. So thank you, and thank you for listening. Sorry for the audio issues again on the podcast. One of the microphones was a little bit wonky, um, but we got her all fixed, and the next time it will be better, so apologies. All music on this show is produced and composed by Trenton Burton. You can hear more of his music by searching Trenton Burton on Spotify. The Cause and Effect is a podcast of the Winnipeg Foundation. You can learn more about the foundation by searching at WPGFDN on all social media platforms or by going to our website at WPGFDN.org. I'm Nolan Bicknell. We'll see you next week. And remember, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, that's the only thing that ever has. Bye-bye.